You're listening to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here with David Curry today. Uh, David is president of Open Doors USA, the organization that serves the persecuted church around the world. David, we're delighted to have you with us today. Thanks for taking some time to be with us on this. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here at Talbot. Many of our listeners, David, might not be all that familiar with the ministry of Open Doors. Uh, So what is the mission of Open Doors, and what exactly is the kind of work that Open Doors does as an organization? Well, the mission of Open Doors is to connect and strengthen the persecuted church around the world. Now, we started 60-some years ago. We had a very iconic founder. His name was Brother Andrew. Many people perhaps listening would know Brother Andrew. He wrote a a very famous book called God's Smuggler. And essentially, he started this idea that he wanted to take God's word to people who did not have access to it, who were living behind borders and walls or in cultures where Christianity was opposed, where people were harassed for their faith. And and today, of course, there are countries where it's even worse than that, where people lose their life for their faith. So Open Doors is there to be an assist to the church, to help them, to comfort them, to train them in some cases, and fundamentally, just like 60-some years ago, to get them access to the Bible and Bible training. Can you tell, tell our listeners a little bit more about the sort of the life and the legacy that Brother Andrew has left? He's still alive today. He's still alive today. He's getting close to, if not 90 years of age. He uh, lives in Europe. He always has lived in Europe. Uh, one of the things I think that's really encouraging uh, for those people who have met Andrew or read his books is that he's not like somebody you've met before. He's just different. He's a maverick personality. And I say that because people listening who have God's calling on their life or ministry or feel like they have a calling to fulfill, sometimes you feel like, yeah, maybe I don't fit the mold. Brother Andrew doesn't fit any mold. He breaks molds. Uh, he's this iconoclastic person who decided to go into the Soviet Union basically because people told him you couldn't do that. Uh, but he had this strong drive to get people scripture uh, in the old Soviet Union. But then it transitioned. He really felt God calling him at some point, really prophetically, I think, to get into China, to start dealing in the Middle East with Muslims. And he's just been an, an amazing guy. But he sends, uh, I think, really a strong message to the body of Christ with his life, but also with his writings, that y- you need to be in prayer. You need to be focused around the book, because around the world, when you're in Muslim cultures, when you're in persecuted countries, you need to be centered on what's true, what's what crosses cultural boundaries, what's eternal, but also that we need to be adventurous. We need to, to gather not just in the walls, but get across borders into countries and into places and connect with people who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, but they don't have the freedom we do. do you, I, I, I'm sure you do uh, have a, a story or two that sort of encapsulizes this iconoclastic, out-of-the-box spirit of Brother Andrew – well, uh, I've had several conversations I with him. You have, you've yeah. had a number of these. He's, he, he's just, every time you, you meet with him, you're learning something different. On one occasion, uh, I was with him in the, in the Netherlands. We had a, a long dinner, and I was trying to get every story I can out of him. And, and I said to him, hey, did, does your, did your wife travel with you anymore? And he 
launched into a story that I've never seen in any book or heard before, uh, that he was in Afghanistan uh, reaching out to tribes uh, that were with the Taliban, and he was captured, he and his wife. Uh, and and I was like, wait a minute. He was just sort of he, – he was telling me this story in context to, you know, do you travel with your wife? That was the question. Uh, and, and he sort of secondarily talked about getting in to meet the Taliban and that he was captured uh, by a, a rogue group and held captive. And he was so desperate to talk to them about Jesus that he was going in there with his spouse. Unbelievable. Uh, and eventually, of course, he was let go. And the answer to his, to my question uh, is he doesn't travel with his wife anymore for that reason. <laughs> but just the sort of person that when, when, when everybody's trying to get out and get away, he wants to talk to them about the book and about Jesus. And that means in his day, talking with people like Yasser Arafat, Idi Amin, you know, these people who are dictators in their day uh, and, and or suspect characters. Uh, from other faiths, wanting to talk to them about Jesus in in schools ac- across the Middle East and Asia and Pakistan. Uh, so just a dynamic character, and and it stretches our uh, ideas about what it means to love others who uh, might be an, in, from a different faith, but also those that might be persecutors themselves, which is really a yeah, biblical concept. Yeah, yeah. It's a New Testament concept that we understand, sort of uh, you know conceptually. But when you talk about does God want to re- reach Osama bin Laden, does he want to reach uh, a Baghdadi who's a leader of ISIS or some of these other characters, he wants to reach these people. But who is going to take that message to them? It's a hard message, but it's one we got to struggle with, and Andrew sort of leads the way in that. Yeah, it sounds like he's been he, – I mean, he spent his life being very courageous in going places where very few people dare to go before. I know back in the 50s and 60s, that was – it was not that common for people to go that brazenly behind the Iron Curtain. And his statement to me and to many others was be that God always promised me I could get in. He just doesn't always promise he can get out, uh, but God's always brought him safely through it. And and I encourage people to read God Smuggler. It's it's um, you know about the Soviet Union and that that adventure of getting Scripture into the Soviet Union, but it's not. It's about. Dealing with persecuted Christians, it's about courage. It's about the development of personal faith in the face of persecution and danger, which is more prevalent today than ever before. One of the assumptions that we work on at Open Doors is that the greatest wave of persecution of Christians has not happened yet. And we are in in, mo- in the modern age. It's never been higher. But I think the people who are listening to this podcast need to know all of the key drivers that have made these last four years extremely high in persecution of Christians. They're all still in place. They're growing, they're spreading Islamic extremism uh, and on all those other factors. So we need to be prepared to be a courageous group in ministry across borders and in in regions that we don't often think of. So tell our listeners a bit about the the World Watch list uh, and and how that gives us a glimpse into the state of the persecuted church around the world. Well, the World Watch List is a product of Open Doors. We started about 25 years ago as an internal mechanism, really, before that, to try to figure out 
God, where, where are people most in need and where might you be leading us? There are a number of factors whenever Open Doors gets into a particular country or region that we're looking at. Some of it is a spiritual sense. And sometimes God moves you into a country or region when it's not yet on the world watch list of, of persecuted countries. For example, Syria. We started into Syria when it, there was no persecution. But we really sensed God leading. It was a spiritual thing. God was leading in, in Brother Andrew, but also others. And then, then five or six years later, after we built an infrastructure, the country falls apart. Yeah. Somebody just, had a nice prophetic sense yeah, about, about really, that. Yeah, he really he really did. So uh, the World Watch List was starting to help us analyze where is persecution at its worst? Uh, what are the factors of persecution? Because in some countries, the government is the persecutor. The police force is the persecutor. In other countries... Uh, it's a cultural thing. It's even within the family, where if a, if a family of extreme uh, Islamic belief uh, has someone in their family that becomes a follower of Jesus, they can be ostracized from the family or worse. Uh, in many cases, it's worse. Uh, so we have this world watch list now that we share with the world for the last 25 years, and we rank the most difficult places so that people don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder, based on an anecdote you heard, what is the toughest and we provide that for people on our website and in, in the media at opendoorsusa.org. And it gives country profiles, help you understand the different nature of it. It's different in, in North Korea than it is in Somalia uh, because of the culture, because of the government factors and so forth. And so the World Watch List is re it's released, updated and released every year? Every year in January we release it and, and, uh, and you know, governments pay attention to it. We brief the State Department on it, but really it's a mechanism for the body of Christ to understand, to pray, to be connected with their brothers and sisters around the world. Do the players on the World Watch list change much, or are they pretty well entrenched in their spots? They, there's, it's a little bit of both. For the last 15 years, uh, North Korea has been at the top. Uh, for all of the reasons that people probably can imagine, you have a strong government with a an old school communistic system that uses all of the mechanisms of state to repress Christian expression. Uh, and number two, you have Somalia, but it's number two by one point. So this year it could be number one. In in North Korea, if you're uh, found to have a Bible, you'll be arrested and put in a labor camp, maybe for the rest of your life, and many Christians die. 60,000 Christians today in labor camps in North Korea. In Somalia, if you're suspected of being a Christian, you won't even get a trial. So there's the, just totally different uh, mechanisms of persecution, equally dangerous in some sense, uh, but the tribal nature of Somalia um, and the, the brutality, uh, uh, vigilante justice against Christians is right there. So you've got a lot of factors like that in, in the World Watch List, and you have these trends that, that do bring changes. The rise of uh, radical Islam is obviously something that's been a trend. But the rise of radical Hinduism in India and other parts yeah, of the world is now yeah. a new trend that's going to bump up uh, India from uh, where they're at to – it's jumped up to number 15. It was way down on the list, maybe into the top 10 this year. That's brand new. And the, by the way, the people listening here, Christian uh, pastors and so forth, they're not yet caught up to this idea. When people think of India, they think of Gandhi. They think of peaceful revolution. Uh, but this is – just brutality against Christians. It's oppression from the state. 
It's attacks from radical Hinduism uh, against churches and pastors on a massive level. So uh, India is something that's changing a lot. It's one of the trends I could recognize that's that's different in the last two years, three years. And we've had s- several of our, our grad students at Talbot who have come from India uh, who came to Christ out of Hindu backgrounds, and a couple of them have told us that they're, they they have not traveled back to their home since because they're, they're afraid to go back to the village that they grew up in. Because they, yeah. they literally fear for their life. Well, the, it's it would be analogous to if imagine if uh, I guess maybe the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt taking control would be an, an analogy that people could understand. The government of India is now run by people who are sympathetic at the at the least to radical Hinduism, and they're not pursuing people who attack Christians. They're laying down laws and and policies that make it very difficult for Christians and. It's going to be a big challenge. And radical radical Hinduism has its own analogy to jihad and things like that in radical Islam. Well, it's it's it sounds very much like nationalism uh, that you're not you're not a true Indian unless you are Hindu, and and we have to purify this this country and bring us back to our Hindu roots. It, it's a version of what you see in other countries. Uh, but it gives free reign. They have their their clerics of sort that um, even on I've seen public uh, you know news programs like their version of CNN where they talk openly. They want to get rid of Christians and Christianity by 2025, I believe it is. So just within the next few years, and they're bringing a lot of pressure on it. Now this isn't a country that has a handful of Christians. There are 65 million right, right. Christians in India, and. They're going to make it difficult for those people to get funding, support for their ministries. They're already doing that, succeeding on some level, I'm afraid, uh, but also imprisoning pastors, making sure that uh, they don't have the freedom to talk openly about their faith. This is one of the things that's embedded in all of these different movements is people, they want to restrict the freedom of choice for people to decide their, their own faith. This is really helpful that you mentioned this, David, because I suspect for a lot of our listeners, this is not on their radar screen yet. Uh, that they still view is, view India like we viewed them 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, but it, things, it, it sounds like things it, have it things changed have radically changed, and it's going to be a major issue because we have a lot of brothers and sisters there, and it's a major player in the world community, and and seeks to be more so in the economy and so forth. They just have so much influence in that way that it's going to be a challenge. Now. A big part of what Open Doors USA does is to bring awareness of the persecuted church to churches in the United States. What, what are some of the challenges that you face in bringing this kind of awareness of the persecuted church and, and, and making it stick in yeah. a lot of churches today? Well, I think that the challenge, uh, the first challenge that jumps to mind is the one that a lot of people will understand, just a lot of noise out there. There's a lot in the political sphere. There's a, a lot of busyness that goes on in our culture. And with social media and the increase of information, it's hard to break through. The other thing I would say that's a challenge for us, and our goal is to really make this issue, the needs and the stories of the persecuted church, unavoidable for an American believer, is to try to help people understand how closely they are connected to what's going on around the world and that this is not an ancillary issue. It's central to all of the things that we're dealing with, and that it's also coming closer to us. And we're just, uh, you might even say, a stone's throw away from from experiencing this in a, in a very significant way. Maybe not in governmental control, although you see an increase in 
aggressive secularism that seeks to make laws and policies and, and, and make it difficult. You'll see it rolling over into our tax policies, people wanting to rescind taxes. Biola's had challenges here in Christian universities. So those sorts of things are going to grow, but it won't take too long, I think, before we may see attacks on churches in the United States, and then people will begin to say, oh, wait a minute, I guess this is a is a worldwide issue now. But let's go beyond that. I really think that the American church needs to look beyond their own, their own self-interest and say, look, what are we called to do? There are a lot of things that in Scripture we're called to do as individuals. Maybe one person has a calling to do this and another person has a calling to do that. But there are some universal callings of which one is to care and to pray for people who are in chains for Jesus' name and or persecuted for Jesus' name. So that's where, where I want to start. This is what we're all supposed to do at a, at a base level, be praying for those people who are persecuted. But in all the noise, it's hard to sort that out. And it's a hard subject, I think, to get close to because it's, it sounds a lot like embracing a trauma. But I think there's a, so much victory in the midst of it, too, that, that it comes with its, its own benefit, if you will. It seems to me this is one of the areas at Talbot here where we're equipping the next generation of pastors to get them to see that our commitment to and concern for and prayer for the persecuted church is just part and parcel of faithfully following Jesus. Yeah. Not a program. It's not an add-on. It's not something that we do once or twice a year, but it's just it's part of the fabric of who we are as a follower of Jesus. It it needs Uh, to be part of that because there. There's a couple of reasons why, because of course they there are incidents and and issues that we can help resolve, and that's the way we typically see it is as a missions need. But there's more to it than that, because when you get close to the people in persecution, and this is what Andrew found when he was going across the border sixty some years ago when he started, but it's also what you see today when you get close to them, you hear the stories of victory that God is when you lose it all is God enough. Don't we all wonder that on some essential level? And the answer is he is more than enough, even in North Korea, in Somalia, in these places. So um, do you walk away in a way emboldened, uh, encouraged, uh, your heart's always broken, but I think that's, uh, that's not such a bad thing sometimes with all the blessings we have and freedoms we have. That's a, that's a very provocative question to put to our listeners today, mm-hmm. that if you lost it all, would your relationship to Jesus be enough? Right. Uh, I think at, at this point, I think there are lots of us who are grateful we don't have to put that to the test, mm-hmm. uh, at least at the moment. Uh, but if I hear you correctly, that may not be too long down well, the road. I, I think we're going to see those challenges. And I think certainly anybody who's listening to this podcast, it's a good assumption that these are leaders here. And you're, you're a leader or you're going to be a future leader. And you're going to see this rise firsthand deal with these pressures. Let's not just look at it from the the viewpoint of terrorism or policy or tax law. Let's look at it first as a spiritual issue. Get this down in your heart. Jesus is enough. He's called us. He he said, look, there's a way that you can avoid this. Just don't talk about Jesus. But if you're going to be one of of my kids, it's going to be with you. Persecution is going to be with you. So it's an interesting point because one of the things we don't do at Open Doors is try to May work on the assumption that we're going to eliminate persecution. We try to advocate for people if they're in prison. We'll get in there and help, you know, get them lawyers and get them help and in any way we can. But we know if we're talking about Jesus, there's going to be persecution right until the very end. And so 
I think that's important to, re to realize. Even in all the injustice in the world, I think it's right to try to alleviate it. But know that if we're going to be about Jesus, we will be opposed. So Open Doors is, is not in the business of helping persecuted believers get out of their Sometimes, context. sometimes we are, but the Middle East is a good is a good example because what you have there is a is a population that in Syria and the north of Iraq, for example, many people were saying, "How can we get Christians out?" We we actually want an indigenous, strong indigenous church in Mosul, in the north of Iraq, which is biblical Nineveh. Imagine Nineveh through the eyes of Jonah. Mm -hmm. Well, you have a very similar sort of spiritual case here where we're called to have a body of Christ in Nineveh, in Mosul. We need to get in there. We don't need to ship them all. Our now, it may be that God wants some of these people out for their safety and so forth, and that's certainly part of you know, the leading of the Lord. But I think as a fundamental understanding, we need indigenous people groups in North Korea, in, in Iraq, in Syria, and we need to essentially strengthen the church, and that's what Open Doors is about. Whatever its need, we want to be there to strengthen it so that it can be, be strong and be rooted. I take it o over the years that you've been with Open Doors, you've come into contact with some pretty fascinating people, uh, both as you travel and people who are brought over to this country to visit and help raise awareness of what's going on with the persecuted church. Who, who, can you tell us some of those stories of people who I suspect have become your heroes? Yeah, there's a lot of heroes. Uh, one of them that jumps out, and in, in part of it is the mechanism that I had to go through in order just to meet with this pastor. He's a pastor in the Uyghur uh, northwest uh, part of China. That's the Uyghur people, if, if people are familiar with that. And in the northwest part of China, you have a large uh, Muslim population because of the Silk Road trade over the years. And so you have extremist Islam in that, and the Chinese government has sort of quarantined in some ways that people group because they know extremist Islam is there, so they crack down on religious rights. But it also means they're cracking down on Christians. So you have a situation where the government of China is cracking down on Christians, and they're living in the midst of extremist Islam. So I had to go to, to China to meet with this pastor and talk about some of the projects and ways that we could help serve them and support the church there, and had to meet this pastor. His name is Pastor James. He's, he's a true hero. I had to meet him, and we literally had to have him jump into my vehicle while it was moving so that people couldn't track us and find us and meet, have, uh, in our meeting place. And then we just drove around the city for three hours, just talking, sharing, praying. Uh, and he is, is on the run. And last I heard, he's still on the run. But at the same time, he had 200-some uh, small groups in that very difficult region. And was, wow. Scott, I'm telling you something, if you were with him right now, you'd have a big smile on your face because he's smiling and laughing and is a person of joy in the midst of that. So we'll talk about heroes. I, I, yeah, I don't think of yeah. names that you'd recognize, but people, when you see them, you recognize greatness. You recognize the, the, the peace of Jesus. Uh, People like Pastor James uh, in China would certainly be one of them. Now, you've also had visitors to this country from North Korea. Yes. Um, can you tell us about some, 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 sure. some I, of those? I mean, those, those would strike me as being major heroic people. Yeah. And some of the, those people that we would meet here, of course, would be people who have escaped. 
but some of the really heroic people, I don't, I don't think people really understand how much ministry is happening in China. And you always hesitate to talk about it because people are under such extreme pressure. And, and the North Korean government monitors open doors. They monitor our statements and our publications and so forth. So we're very cautious about how exactly we support the persecuted church mm -hmm. to their kids about it until they're of age because the government will use minders or they'll get into the school and say, hey, we'll give you, in a, in a world of famine, we'll give you another chicken or some more food or resources if you tell us if mom or dad have yeah. a Bible. Yeah. And that's how some people are found out because the kids unknowingly, no, not knowing they'll never see their parents again, will say, yeah, well, you know, mom has a Bible stash. Yeah. So it creates a very dysfunctional setup, but that's the nature of that very unusual regime that's been in place since the mid-40s. Open Doors works quite a bit in the Middle East, too. Uh, a few years ago, the Arab Spring was celebrated as this overthrow of dictators and supposedly this great opportunity for freedom and freedom of conscience. Uh, what's, what's happened to the church as a result of well, the for Arab a long, Spring? Yeah, for a long time it looked like we, we called it the Arab Winter because of the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood and the impact of that and, and the, the recourse it's had throughout. When there's been freedom, it, it's sometimes a snap to the rule of radicals or tribal culture, um, it, the way it's played out anyway, of course. Uh, so w uh, ha having said that, there are pockets of hope in the Middle East. I think you look at Egypt, it's a strong church, it's a young church, and it's a church under attack. ISIS, I think you'll see more about this in the news. ISIS, while it's disbanding and being forced out of the north of Iraq and Syria and losing territory, is metastasizing. Their, 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 their bomb uh, folks are training people in Africa. They're targeting, uh, disrupting Egypt because they know that that government supports uh, more freedom and they have a lot of radical schools in Egypt. So there are pockets of hope in Egypt, but it's a tough area. Uh, there's, I think, a lot of uh, young, strong church in Iran. You don't hear about it much. So there's a lot going on in, in that revolution that could be seen as bad, but there are pockets of hope. A lot of good, lot of good stuff in the a midst of that. A lot of good stuff, and I would say Syria, the Syria Church, while it's gone through civil war the last seven or eight years, is reviving. One last question: What's uh, of all the things that are the persecuted church is dealing with? What what what's the one thing you want our listeners to be praying about for the persecuted church? Well, if they're praying about the persecuted church, I'm encouraged. Um, I would just say that when the persecuted church asks for prayer, they ask for spiritual revival. They want. They don't want us to pray for them not so much as they do with them. And that's very consistent, shockingly consistent. They're not asking for things. They're asking for prayer of community and protection. David, thank you so much for joining us on this broadcast today. This is so helpful to raise our awareness of what's going on in the persecuted church around the world. And may our, may our listeners see this as just something that's intrinsic to their relationship to God. That, well, thank uh, you. It's a, this is a wonderful place, and you all are doing great work. Delighted to have you with us. Thanks. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, David Curry, and to find more episodes, go to www.biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.